My name is Stacy Sargent Lawton, and I'm a hospital chaplain. Each week on this podcast, a few fellow chaplains will join me to discuss an episode or two of the great TV hospital drama, ER, from our unique perspectives as spiritual caregivers. This is ER Chaplains Watching ER. Father, please protect my soul. Hi, and welcome to another great episode of ER Chaplains Watching ER. I'm your host, Stacey Sargent Lawton, and with me tonight I have three other fabulous chaplains Carrie Walker Nettles. Hi. Sarah Jane Moran. Greetings. And Janie Toy Powell. Hi. Tonight we're going to look at episodes eight and nine of the first season of ER together. To begin, we'll be looking at the episode titled Nine and a Half Hours, and we have decided to keep our recaps shorter, so tonight I'm going to be the first one to be at the mercy of the minute and a half timer. We'll see how I do. So, without further ado, here's the bullet. Susan's car is broken thanks to Chloe. She has to hotwire it to get to work. Carter later pays for a guy to fix it for her. Dib's fedic is still being horrible to everyone. Susan tries to show concern, but he brushes her off. Doug Ross is in charge of the ER and overwhelmed, while Mark Green enjoys a day off to connect with his wife in bed for the first time in three weeks. Peter Benton and Sarah Langworthy wait to see who gets the Starzl Fellowship. In the end, it's not Benton. Nurse Carol Hathaway cares for Jamie, a young woman we learn was gang-raped. She's blaming herself and reluctant to talk to police. Benton and Carter care for a high school wrestler suffering a cardiac episode. Benton saves his life, and Carter talks to him, correctly guessing the kid has an eating disorder from trying to maintain wrestling weight classification. Ross and Benton clash over care of a six-year-old boy with epiglottitis. Benton later admits he was trying to overcome feelings of failure after losing the fellowship. Benton's mother comes in with a sprained ankle. She's confused but very sweet and invites Carter to Thanksgiving dinner. Div commits a drunken, distraught man with a head lack, but Susan sees this as unreasonable and releases him after he sobers up. Mark's text marathon ends when Jen gets a call from her law office and starts flirting with Craig on the phone. Jerry introduces Doug to the new ER desk clerk, whom Doug calls Bob because he's too freaking lazy to even try pronouncing her actual name. Ooh, a minute and 18 seconds. Not bad. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. So, anybody have any initial comments on this episode? (laughs) I watched this one at the gym. (laughs) <laughs> where everybody could see what I was watching. And um, that was kind of uncomfortable <laughs> with them, with Dr. Green's day at home to ah, reconnect with yes. his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so, start off with a bang. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Um, so, yeah, that was, um, there were some light moments and some really heavy moments in this episode. <laughs> it was a good mixed bag. Yeah, they continued to have Doug Ross say, how does Mark Green do this? How does he do this Um, in terms of staying on top of all of the paperwork and attending to all of the different needs um, presenting in the ER in terms of administration and any given shift? And um, I think it was Jerry at one point said he puts in about four extra hours after each shift. Yeah, which would be like 16 (laughs) hours. God. Once again, I'm frustrated with Doug Ross for acting so helpless about everything. And he's always asking other people, like, 
what does this medical term mean? Come on, dude, you know? And at one point, he calls, um, he calls Mark on the phone and leaves him a message saying, rescue me, which I wrote down <laughs> because I feel like he's always asking other people to rescue him, really, like in, in a multitude of ways. And I really just want him to stand up and, and learn to like himself for himself. And then he'd be more likable. You know, I wonder, uh, as you said that, I wondered if he chose his specialty because, um, I don't know, it, it, he, he seems to always pass off his, his in, what's the word, like his lack of knowledge, not lack of knowledge about stuff is like, oh, well, I'm a pediatrician, you know, so like, <laughs> oh, that's not something I have to know. So mm -hmm. I wonder if it's almost like a crutch. And then there's that parallel, too, of kids needing kids needing help. And so maybe yeah. you know, he relates to them because um, yes. he needs help. He needs to be rescued sometimes, too. Excellent point. Yeah, yeah that's very true. He's so much better with kids than he is with adults always. <laughs> Um, I was also glad that we get to see Mookie again, Halei's um, friend, and he's doing his internship, and Benton has him clean out the fridge, which is absolutely disgusting, but that's totally realistic. I mean, the ER staff fridge is always gross. Yes. So the... The guy who was intoxicated with the head laceration that Div um, ends up committing, uh, I wanted to spend some time talking about him and particularly talking about trauma-informed care. Um, so part of what he articulates is having, was he in the wreck with his family? Is I think right? so. It was kind of hard. He just brushes over it so fast. And like I said, Div never asks any follow-up questions, but... um. Yeah, it sounds like he saw, maybe he saw his wife and son die in a car crash. And he specifically mentions seeing his son decapitated. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the truth is that folks who work in the ER, um, you know, see all different kinds of, of accidents come through and they tend to the family members and loved ones of those. And in when there are horrific accidents, the survivors of those have a, a no, number of issues, um, including things like survivor guilt, mm -hmm. um, but then also just like the trauma of witnessing that, much less the loss that you sustain in in your loved ones who have died. And uh, for people who are uh, trauma survivors, it's not at all surprising to see them using things like alcohol to cope um, mm -hmm. and not feel whatever feelings they're dealing with. Um, and so Div's approach to this man, I mean, I know we've already talked about how Div is just kind of clearly heading towards burnout. Um, and his approach to this man in particular is, is so lacking in trauma-informed care, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that posture that shifts from what's wrong with you to uh, what happened to you, right? So when we can shift our perspective that way, uh, we can do a better job of uh, serving the person in front of us. 
Yes, because um, he goes back and forth between rage and helplessness and weeping, and it's it's really terrible to watch. But once you understand the background, you can't help but feel for him. And um, I realize now that, and I wanted I wanted to apologize for how hard I was on Div last episode because I really do think after seeing these epi two episodes that um, you know, he's in a very bad place, so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, and Susan is trying to, to point out to him that he's not, he's not being kind to people, um, mm -hmm. that he's snapping at people. And uh, he brushes it off and says, well, someone screwed up, at which point... Um, Dr. Lewis says, it wasn't someone, it was Jerry. So she's bringing the humanity back into it, but he's having a really hard time keeping the humanity um, in his patients. And that shows in this man, all, all Div has is anger about what's going on, personal anger, rather than being able to see beyond himself and see this man for what's going on. Yeah, and if a chaplain had been there, um, since the psychiatrist didn't do it, a chaplain, you know, when when Mr. Randall was sober, probably wouldn't have been the time to have a conversation then, but um, a chaplain could have been a person to come back to him and, and say, you know, I heard you mention your wife and your son. Um, would you like to, to tell me what happened and give him a chance to talk about some of that and maybe start working through some of the trauma. I'm not sure that that Susan, you know, letting him out was really the best answer either. I, I, right. I question that is not a good choice. Exactly. Um, especially if he goes out and does something, then the hospital, you know, it come back to bite them, as well as the fact that it's just irresponsible. Healthcare. Yeah, he does seem like a danger to himself. <laughs> Absolutely. Or others. I mean, mm -hmm. staying intoxicated, you can't, you know, keep those around you safe necessarily either. And I think you're right. Whatever, you know, even though Div's motives for committing him were questionable and, you know, there's some, <laughs> maybe an ethics call there, um, at least while he's inpatient, um, presumably we can connect him with some of the resources and support that he needs. And, I agree. I appreciated Susan's um, compassion towards him, um, but I second your note of irresponsibility on her part to just turn him out onto the street. He's not getting what he needs. Yeah, and she doesn't even talk to him at all, you know, before she discharges him about what's going on with him and why was he in that condition, you know, what, what can she do to help? There's none of that at all. She's just like, you know, I, d I disagree with what Div did, so I'm just going to let you go. Yes. So uh, speaking of trauma-informed care, can we talk about our rape victim? Who? Yeah. I'm glad that you're here for this. Uh, so for our listeners, I serve in part as the uh, local sexual assault Center chaplain, and we um, I'm one of 
eight staff who report to any ER in the county for a SANE kit, SANE sexual assault nurse examiner, um, a SANE exam, rape kit. Um, and so there was a lot uh, that was depicted in this scene that's 20 something years old now. Uh, that's the same and a lot that's different. Um, I think there are things that nurse Hathaway did well and um, things that really troubled me. Um, to start off with, the girl just like lights up a cigarette and starts smoking in <laughs> inside the hospital. Yeah, inside the so hospital, bizarre. which is really kind of a weird thing to see. Um, but you know, and and Nurse Hathaway just you know hands her an ashtray basically um, and doesn't um, you know get all over her about not smoking. Now you know. Uh, who I am and how I show up in the world, my first reaction is like, oh my gosh, you're going to blow us all up. Yeah. <laughs> so many uh, oxygen lines running around here. Um, but who am as a chaplain? There were times, um, you know, at the hospital when I would walk outside with patients um, and accompany them for their, their smoke break. I wouldn't join them in that, but I would go with them to... Um, offer the ministry of presence, basically, that um, I'm here with you and it's been a significant loss that you've sustained or there's a lot of questions up in the air or whatever. So um, there's a sense in which Carol, Nurse Hathaway, um, allowing her to smoke is a kind of pastoral care, if, <laughs> if you know what I mean. A, it is an allowance and it does show empathy in some way. She's allowing her some, some way of trying to deal with what's going on just for the moment before she starts to talk right. right like that's not the time for her to quit yeah, yeah. exactly that's what I always exactly. think about yeah I go sit with them sometimes too and yeah I think that today's not the day right <laughs> and it's certainly not the moment for me to chastise you right right <laughs> which leads me to some of my other points regarding how Carol showed up with her um I really appreciated uh, the ways that she repeatedly stated some version of it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. um, I think that when you are working with a sexual assault survivor, um, that's one of the very best things you can say to them, including things like, I believe you. Um, it's not your fault. Thank you for telling me those kinds of things. Um, my, my frustration with Carol um, was when she, she got a little tough with her around um, pushing her and insisting that she, number one, get a rape kit. Um, when we show up as advocates with uh, sexual assault victims in the ER, um, we want to empower them to make the choices that they need. I mean, sexual assault victims have had their power stripped away from them in, in the assault. Um, so we want to hand them choices and hand power back over to them. Um, including, you know, if they're not a minor, um, they get to decide whether or not they want to press charges. Um, some folks will come to the hospital seeking, um, you know, medicine or just to check and make sure that my um, body is healthy and not injured, but don't necessarily want a full rape kit in order to um, prosecute, um, to open a law enforcement investigation and prosecute. And I'm not really sure what the rules around rape kits were 20 years ago, 
Um, but just in terms of, you know, pushing her on that and telling her, oh, you have to do this. Um, I'm just not sure that that's helpful in that moment. Um, and the truth is, uh, it's not, she said some version of like, we have to get this right now, meaning like, um, evidence off of her body. Um, and I don't know if this is because the, uh, technology has advanced in the last 20 years or not, but, uh, you have up to five days up to five days to collect evidence. Um, but it's a different, it's a different window of time, frankly, for different orifices that you're collecting evidence from. Um, so they, sometimes- they, they said something to the effect of when the, when the policeman that brought her in asked Carol if she was certified. And I wonder what it was that he was asking her that she was certified in in being able to do a rape kit, in being able to counsel a rape victim. There was something there that he was he was checking on, but he wasn't specific. Do you know what he was referring to? I don't necessarily know what exactly that meant 20 years ago. What I can say is that there is special training um, for performing these kinds of examinations. Now, the truth is um, there's instructions in the rape kit, so technically any doctor or nurse can um, facilitate the kit. And if it's a, a not trained nurse, they have to bring in a doctor for the pelvic portion. Um, but sane nurses, sexual assault nurse examiners, um, have a level of training uh, above and beyond. And that's really optimal in terms of... Um, not just collecting the evidence, but also working with the patient um, because they have had that level of trauma-informed care. And my sane nurses here in this community are some of my favorite people in the world. I love the way that they show up with our victims. Um, they are so kind and so supportive. And um, they do have that trauma-informed approach. They understand what trauma looks like. So you know, when she's saying that she couldn't remember and she's blaming herself a lot for not having fought back more um, or not articulating, you know, two or three uh, perpetrators instead of, like, I think it was one initially that she identified. Um, you know, a lot of our community partners understand what trauma looks like and understand that victims don't necessarily have immediate recall of all of that um, because trauma has very literal physical effects on the brain. And I was frustrated with Carol at that point because she got really angry with her for yeah. quote unquote lying to her. Yeah. And, yes. I, and I could tell enough from her, her, uh, her demeanor and her body language that this was just coming back to her. That So even though I'm not an expert in trauma, as a chaplain, I believe that I would have recognized that that was the truth. And so exactly. that anger was totally misplaced and made her like physically back up. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. The other thing, um, there's a lot of sexual assault myths that are still prevalent out there. You see it a lot in terms of, um, you know, when the internet people come out and start responding to the Me Too stories, you can see evidence of these myths 
still today. Um, and one of those is that if you really didn't want this to happen, meaning the sexual assault, then you would have fought back, um, which again is a failure to recognize um, the neurobiology of trauma and that oftentimes the trauma response is either fight, flight, or freeze. And there's something, there's biological reality there that if our brains, or I mean, if our bodies freeze up and, you know, we sort of play possum, so to speak, to use best Southernism, um, and that's a life-saving measure. Um, and, and it's kind of, I think, miraculous that we have bodies that are created to help us stay alive in that way. Well, and I feel, I feel that there's that one, there's several different times that she, that Nurse Hathaway keeps saying, it's going to be okay. And I feel that this is the same level of, um, of lying that Doug Ross did when he told the child that, you know, oh, for sure, you can stay with your abusive parent. Right. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know the situation, and that is not something that she can assure this person of. She can, she can assure her that she is safe at that particular moment in this hospital and that, you know, she will get the care and information she needs. But that's, that's one of the things that Jamie says is, is it going to be okay? Is it? Right. Yeah. I, ha I have a question, Carrie, about, well, I guess all of you, but do these rules and about the, like the rape kit protocol, do those vary by state? Yes and no. Um, so, for example, in in the county where uh, our rape crisis serves, um, you know, the local sheriff's office has offered to. Um, I don't know if y'all saw. Let me stop myself. Um, put a pen in that and and mention the recent documentary on HBO called "I Am Evidence" that talks about the stockpiles of rape kits in cities around um, the country, like uh, Detroit and um, LA and whatnot. And they found all of these and they're all unprocessed. And, um, and there's a lot of different um, opinions and conversations around why that is and whatnot. Um, in our county, um, it, it, standard operating procedure says that the property and evidence will hold on to the rape kit for um, a, a, to an anonymous rape kit for a year. And the victim has up to a year to decide if they want to um, change their mind and turn around and prosecute, in which case the anonymous kit would then become known. Um, however, our sheriff or our sheriff's office has said that um, if he ha as long as he has the space, he will hold them longer. Um, so it's sort of a courtesy, you know, to say, um, as long as we can store them for longer than we will. Now, in terms of um, collecting evidence from different bodily orifices, there are standard practices um, that are set nationwide. What about the, oh, sorry. Oh, it, did I answer you? Yeah, I'm just, 
just thinking that the, the three of you are in uh, South Carolina and I'm mm -hmm. not. So I'm just wondering if our, if it's different. So I was just going to ask about the pictures um, because that was just one of the hardest parts to watch is that this police photographer has to come in, you know, while she's there, spread eagle and take pictures of her vagina. Um, is, does that, is that how it really works like now? Sometimes. It, it really kind of depends on um, the narrative. Um, so if, she is articulating, um, you know, he d did this, that, or the other to, you know, this, that, or the other part of my body. Um, A certain type they, of injury. Yeah, then they will um, pay extra attention to those areas. Um, so, for example, um, uh, a, a, a contact swab, like skin to skin, is not necessarily as, um, as great at collecting evidence as, you know, a, you know, a swab in her vagina when he for sure ejaculated inside of her, for example, right? Um, however, if she can kind of pinpoint and say, you know, he looked to me here or he ejaculated on me here, um, then they will kind of um, hone in on that area of her body to try and um, do what they can to collect that evidence. Um, so I would imagine if someone is taking pictures of someone's bright eagle, it would be because there's some sort of um, clear injury there, you know, like a tear or something. Um, but every time, no. Okay, yeah, that was my question. That was just, oh, it was just so hard to watch. You know, a lot of our victims will say that, um, you know, even with kind trauma-informed nurses performing their rape kit, a lot of folks will say that um, that was worse than the assault itself. Yeah, that's um, what I was wondering, because it's like this whole being violated all over again in a different way. Um, yeah. just got to be so traumatic. And you're not in the in the freeze situation anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you're right. not in, in absolute survival mode. You're you're reliving it in a totally different way. Yeah, yeah. and it's very vulnerable, very. <coughs> and you know, usually I watch these shows and I say, "Why aren't you calling the chaplain?" And at this moment, I was saying, "Why aren't you calling the rape advocate, you know, <laughs> sexual assault advocate?" Um, you know, I don't know about the nationwide history of of responding to these, but I know that our center has been responding to uh, uh, sexual assault, rape kit accompaniments for 40-some years now. Wow. When we were, when I was training in my residency, I know that there was a lot of dialogue going on in trying to write a standard on how the chaplains were going to be involved. But um, it was towards the end of my residency, so I never got to see um, how they finished writing that up. Um, it was something that I was interested in and had asked about several times. You know, all of the uh, residents uh, where I did my residency and where I primarily respond to uh, SANE exams now, not a single one of them knew where our SANE room was down in the ED. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, like many things, I think there is a culture-to-culture um, variation from one hospital to another or one healthcare system to another. And um, where I once worked um, and where I often respond now, um, there's very clearly a culture of divorcing spiritual care from sexual assault exams. Um, and there seems to be, uh, you know, when I first started asking the question, when I first showed up in this role, um, people just looked at me like I was the craziest fool on earth to wonder about and suggest that a chaplain respond to a sexual assault because, again, because the myth that sexual assault is somehow about sex hmm. and not yeah. about violence and power and um, a sexualized version of violence um and because of all of the shame I think um and some some toxic theology out there um that does victim blame that um victim blames from a theological uh standpoint or you know twisting scripture and weaponizing it against folks um I think that's some of the barriers to to folks even considering uh, calling a chaplain for a rape victim. But as y'all well know, there's no less trauma there than um, when we show up in the trauma bay, right? Oh, absolutely. Thank you for sharing your, your expertise, Carrie. This is a really delicate area, but one that needs to be spoken on and one that we need to be more outspoken about um, and to continue to educate um, in the healthcare profession and in the larger world as well. Absolutely, because we still have um, incidents where um, whoever's working triage in a given ER um, can sometimes be operating out of the sexual assault myth, and we don't necessarily get the victim um, the the type of care they need as soon as we can. So. Um, and this is one way that local uh, sexual assault um, nonprofits can come alongside their healthcare providers and kind of offer education around that. Um, but in the meantime, when healthcare, again, going back to last week's episode, um, when healthcare providers are acting out of assumptions, it's, um, it's the patient who suffers. Uh, like, like the myth that if she was really sex- just now sexually assaulted, then she would be screaming and crying and falling apart. And, um, you know, trauma looks different for a lot of different folks. Well, and the fact that they left her alone so that she had the opportunity to leave yeah. um, when everything is time sensitive, not in a scientific sense as much as just an emotional and spiritual yeah. and healthcare sense that... Um, chaplain who could be one to stay with her the whole time because in you know in in the way that she is in in those moments she would not want to be alone she doesn't she doesn't even know how she feels about herself right yeah and so for what it's worth can i just mention to any listener listening right now that there's a national hotline 1-800-656-HOPE um, and that can connect you to RAIN, um, and that can help connect you to uh, your local resources. 
Yeah, and Carrie has sent some links, listeners, that will be in the show notes for this episode um, for Rain for more information about that. So thank you so much, Carrie. Thanks, y'all. Anyone else have? Let's um, move on to let's move on to Peter Benson and everything going on with him in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, he's ner- nervous about the results of the Starzl Fellowship, and that's affecting everything that he's doing. And he has an interesting uh, run-in with Sarah Langworthy, where she says that he's threatened by losing to a woman, and then. She brings sexual tension into it, which was very strange to me. That out of not nowhere, yeah. Occurred to me before. Um, and it seemed to not have occurred to him either, but maybe planted a seed in his mind. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I do believe that through it all, it was um, a redemptive episode for him. Um, he, was, he was going through all of his moods and, and his... Uh, <laughs> Stages of grief over losing, but um, at the end of the episode, when he's with his brother-in-law and they're mm-hmm. they're uh, in the car repair shop, I guess his brother-in-law is a mechanic and took it over mm-hmm. from from the family. From Peter's dad, that that was, yeah. I felt that that was a really redemptive scene, um, and that uh, Peter Benson gets some things that he needs from that yes. member of the family. Let's, uh, okay, just another little parallel that popped into my mind was the parallels between uh, an auto mechanic and a surgeon. Uh-huh. I mean, I know they're not the same, but they both like, you know, are, they, they, I'm, a, I'm imagining people who think very, uh, are very detail oriented and, and are fixers and, and, and like to, put things back together and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's really interesting that his dad was a mechanic and he ended up being a surgeon, you know? Yeah, so I did too. And I just thought of the contrast between Doug Ross and Peter Benton. I mean, Benton is such a grown up in that confrontation that mm. they have. Um, you know, I was really angry at Doug for being such a, you know, getting so offended that Peter stepped in and saved his patient, this six-year-old kid, and, and Doug was protesting that, I had 90 more seconds. You know, you should have just given me more time to to let me be the one to to, to save him. Um, and then Peter backs down, like, and says, yeah, it was a judgment call, but it was one I should have let you make. And I was just so impressed with Peter in that moment. It was just so mature of him. Um, and then Doug gives him some perspective and says, you lost a fellowship today, not a patient. You saved two lives yeah. in five minutes. That's not a bad day. <laughs> like he had just saved his patient and then ran across the room and saved Doug's patient in the same moment. Um, he's just, he's an excellent doctor and he's also just a really good person and adult. <laughs> and Doug could learn a thing or two from him in some ways. Right. Yes, but I do love that scene with the two of them on the roof. Yeah. The, actually being pals and being real with each other. That's good to see. Yeah. Yeah, between that and, and Doug's thing with Bob at the end of this episode, it was just like, oh, I was just so frustrated with him. I love me some Doug Ross, but good grief. You know, they get this new employee and she tells them her name, which is Bogdan Levetsky, which is not that hard to say. 
And Doug's like, how about we just call you Bob? And, <laughs> um, hell no, Doug. How about we call her by her name and not be right? an Anglo-centric jackass uh. about it? <laughs> <laughs> But Mookie tells her it's a cool nickname, and then she's sort of like, okay, Bob. Cool, Bob. <laughs> but I would I would always be an advocate for calling people by their real names or their chosen, you know, whatever they want to be called. Right. Right. It's not about how you feel as the speaker when you say their name. No. I mean, it's, it's I don't know. Like, I, I that bothers me. Yeah. And I hear that. People do that. Yes. People are like, I refuse to call you your name. And I just, you can make it cute and you can make up nicknames. But, um, yeah, it's kind of like dehumanizing or, I, I, I guess, or saying, like, my, my comfort with saying your name is less important than your actual name. Yes. That your parents gave you that is really important part of who you are. Yeah. yeah, the little girl, I can't remember her name now, but the actress who was the little girl in um, Beasts of the Southern Wild and the Annie remake, she was doing a press conference once and one of the reporters could not pronounce her name and just kind of laughed it off and said, how about I just call you Annie? And this little girl, to her credit, just said, no, that's not my name. Yeah. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, it's important to call people by their names. Just learn how to say it. It's not that hard. This this does foreshadow a little bit of what we'll see when they um, encounter their transgender patient yes. and the way that we show up and respond to folks when they tell us what their given pronouns are, what their chosen mm -hmm. pronouns are, what their chosen names are. Um, this is an identity issue and we're taking jabs at someone's identity when we refuse to call them by their name. Right. You know, that makes me think of, <laughs> so it, in this, um, this Bible Belt culture that it, at least all of us on, on here are part of, um, I, I hear people so easily take, a, they, they, they want to decide if other people are Christians or not. Mm -hmm. And at, at some people, at some point in my spiritual development you know I, I grew up in a tradition that was was evangelical and um which I, I do feel like I need to qualify and say that I, I love that people feel um connected with God and and they have such a, a wonderful relationship with Jesus that they want to share it I think that's a good thing um but I remembered at some point like this, I don't know if someone said it to me or somehow this little thought, this little seed thought came in my head and I decided that I don't have to decide if other people are Christians. Like if they tell me a Christ, they're a Christian, I mean, I want to, I'm going to believe them. I mean, unless I have a reason not to, like, mm -hmm. I don't, it's, it's like, it's like a name. Like if, if somebody says their name is, you know, a, Jennifer, I'm going to call him Jennifer. Like part I just, of that I, identity. If that is right, what, yes. what they're claiming for their identity, you're not going to challenge yeah. that. You're going to respect that and work yeah. within that frame. Yeah. And as an as an advocate, as, a, as for people's spirituality and their spiritual well being, I feel like it's important to say to advocate for people's identity, religious identity, and they say yes. that they're this, and it's so common. I don't know about you guys, but it is so common for, like, somebody else to be like, oh, I don't know if they're fully Christian, you know, or they don't, yeah. they haven't done this, this, and the thing that I've done, and, like, I don't know that I get to decide that. 
and I, I hate, I, I feel vulnerable putting this out there for the world, but, um, amen, Janie, I'm with you. <laughs> it's a touchy, it's a touchy subject because it is such a, it's very dire for a lot of people. And so, and I appreciate that, the urgency and the need, um, to, to evangelize, um, and the way but there's a difference people... between the urgency of the gospel and, and judgment and assumption. Let's go back oh, to the I'm... word assumption. I totally agree. But oh, and coerce and weaponize faith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, yeah. I felt liberated when I decided, like, oh, I don't have to make this. I don't have to decide this. Like, God decides. And God God makes these. I don't I don't make these decisions. Like, I get to share what I know. But yeah, sounds like the name thing to me. Yeah, and that it's not well, our job. It's not our place. And um I have Muslim friends who will do the same thing. One of my friends in particular, who's a woman, you know, has heard other people criticizing other Muslim women who don't wear hijab. And she is always there to step in and defend them and say, you know, you don't get to say that she's not a real Muslim because of what she wears or doesn't wear. <laughs> right. Right. Well, Janie, I've seen exactly what you are articulating, and I'm sure y'all have seen some iterations of this as well. When you have someone in the hospital who's dying, and you have the family member kind of scoot sideways to you and say, I don't know if she's safe. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. then there's some sort of expectation that the chaplain come in and have some sort of, like, literal last-minute come-to-Jesus moment. <laughs> um so that we can save how, them from hellfire. That's not how it works. Right. Right? It's not how any of this works. No. Right. At that point, I that's would usually it. say to the family member who has that concern that if they have something that they need to say to the dying person, then that would be their responsibility, and they would want to think very carefully about how they want to remember their last moments with that loved one. And see, my reflex is to protect the dying person from the well-intentioned dragon. <laughs> at, some, at some point, yes, that is absolutely true. I've actually, yes, all but taken, you know, that, that member of the family, you know, not out of the room, but to the other side of the room to talk them through what's going on. We kind of run interference. Of the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like, I've just, oh, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this because I feel like I've, I have kind of like asked a lot of questions kind of to keep, to kind of to distract people, you know, from that because I felt like that they just, it's helpful for them to process through what they believe and how they believe it. And I am a willing listener and I can hear that. Um, and it also helps give everybody else in that room and in that intense space, some space. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Again, not one of those things I was planning to put out there today, but <laughs> one of my <laughs> secrets. <laughs> this is chaplain yeah, hashtag real talk. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I think we need to wrap up talking about this episode. So we'll have at least a few minutes to talk about the next episode. Um, so listeners, we will take a short break and we'll be back to talk about episode nine in just a moment. Yeah. 
and we're back. Episode 9 of Season 1 of ER is titled ER Confidential. And here with a quick recap, uh, let me get my timer ready. <laughs> with our quick recap is Janie. Are you ready, Janie? I'm ready. Okay, hit us with the recap. So the ER staff um, treats patients involved in an auto accident. Um, one patient tells Nurse Carol Hathaway that he was the driver, knowing that the rest of the treatment team um, believed that another patient was the driver. Um, and, and so it was a secret between the two of them. Uh, a pedestrian, I think, was uh, fatally wounded in the accident. So there was a lot at stake. Um, Carol's also dealing with another ethical dilemma in her relationship with Tag, and she decides to tell him that she kissed Doug. Uh, an animal rights activist comes in and seeking treatment after being attacked by a turkey he was trying to save. Um, this was a this was a Thanksgiving episode, also, so that the turkey thing came up. Um, and then Doug Ross is getting ready for a trip to the Bahamas with drug rep Linda Farrell. Um, she's the worst, by the way. And so, but he's getting ready to go and she's like packing his clothes and being real weird and maternal, I guess. I don't know what that was. So, and then a, uh, after that, a woman named Rena comes in and seeks treatment for lacerations she suffered in an, uh, another auto accident in this episode, um, which in the, hers occurred on a bridge. While treating her, um, Carter discovers that she's a transgendered woman. Um, and they, there's a lot of talking um, while Carter is fixing those lacerations. Um, and at the end of the episode, um, Rena ends up on the roof of the hospital uh, and Carter, uh, preparing to jump, Carter tries to talk her out of it. Um, Div, the psychiatrist is out there and tries to help, um, but it doesn't work. And Rena jumps. All right. Thank you, Janie. Um, we also see a lot more with Div in this episode. Um, the very opening scene, Div Svedek, the psychiatrist, is spending the night at Susan's place, and she wakes up to find him dictating into a tape recorder, but it doesn't sound like patient notes. Um, he's talking about how hard it is to at work, um, not to hate his patients, how he basically hates everything about the hospital and everybody in it. And there's just huge red flags. Um, she tries to get him to talk about it, but he just won't even, you know, talk about it at all, even though he's a psychiatrist and she suggests, well, maybe you should talk to somebody about it, you know? Um, but he just refuses to even acknowledge that he has issues. And then at that the end of the episode, is, he, it's, it's the Thanksgiving dinner, and he doesn't show up. And Susan has an, a suspicion of fearing the worst. And the episode ends with Div out in the middle of a busy road um, on a rainy night, ostensibly trying to get a car to run him over. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for filling in those gaps. I watched this one a couple like a week ago, and I got some of the details mixed up between episodes. We also um, had Mr. Luck as well. Mm -hmm. Mr. Luck was um, ironically named as 
the biggest pessimist that uh, the hospital had ever dealt with. He was in renal failure and could not get dialysis because they had kicked him out of the clinic for being so horrible to everyone. Mm -hmm. And mm. he becomes a little bit of <sighs> um, humor, although it kind of made me cringe. I, yeah, it was really abusive was, uh, behavior yeah, by Susan. It was. And it was, but, that's an ethical <laughs> issue too. I cannot believe she did that. No, I couldn't either. I was like, Dibs Fedek is rubbing off on her <laughs> in the worst possible way. I think that goes back to some of your points, Sarah, about uh, acknowledging someone's humanity or stripping away their humanity by turning them into um, an object to gawk yes. at. She, she stuck a um, fake flower in his hiney and told him that she was taking his temperature, then pulled back the... Um, the curtain of the exam area so that everyone in the hospital could see. And they're all laughing, which I also found to be terrible. Yeah. At both yeah. his nakedness and what she was doing to humiliate him. Basically, I'm against any kind of public humiliation. I yes. can't think of any times that, that I would, would think that was a good thing. Yeah, I don't know how it worked in 1994, but that kind no. of behavior now would get you written up if not fired. You know, she would well, have been. I, are we just supposed to assume that that's just like totally over the top, like ha, ha, ha? But I just can't as a chaplain. I can't. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wonder, she seems sometimes, Dr. Lewis, to run really like hot or cold. Like she's yeah. really compassionate and tuned in or she is checked out. So, um. Yeah, well, she tried. Know. She got him back into the dialysis clinic after making multiple phone calls and trying to convince them that he needed another shot. And then he berates her and calls her multiple names. And you can see her visibly just taking a deep breath and then turning around on her heel. And I, she's deciding at that point that she's going to do something terrible back to him. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think she's taking out a lot of her feelings about Div on this patient, too, that it's sort of a convenient outlet for the fact that she's really angry and frustrated with him. Um, and she's got to do something with it, just deals with it in the worst possible way. Mm -hmm. The other humor in this episode is that the, um, the entire episode, the hospital is heavily decorated with Halloween decorations, despite the fact that it's Thanksgiving, because Bob we were call, talking about in the last episode. And this is what everybody is calling her now. <laughs> Bob uh, doesn't really understand, I guess, American holidays and thinks that this is how she's supposed to decorate. So she goes all out. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, she's having fun there's with it. There's also an Easter banner in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. It's oh. like she just went to one closet and pulled everything out. That she could <laughs> yeah, I like Bob. We'll see her more later. <laughs> So I know we talk a lot about compassion fatigue and burnout, but um, sorry, back to Dr. Lewis's behavior, but that yeah. to me is like a big red flag too. Kind of that, that desensitized, that it's like shutting, I guess it's like shutting down, like, like mm -hmm. not refusing to engage in the humanity of other people. It's, it's almost like you could see or hit a wall and, and, and like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done trying to be a human with this other human. So I'm just going to 
pretend like he's not a human. You know, to me, that is alarming. And, yeah, and yes. those are some symbols and some things that we see, I think, when, when people are on the brink of, of burnout. Yeah. She's not only dealing with, with Div and his yeah. depression and um, eventual suicide attempt, but she's also dealing with Chloe right. and her family issues. And the yeah. fact that she has two people staying at her apartment, I guess. At least they were there for Thanksgiving. So, and since her car got you know, messed with in the last episode. I'm assuming that Chloe is still heavy handed in everything that's going on with her. I missed a lot in that recap because I was trying to keep it short. No, you have to. <laughs> yeah, that's the only way to keep it short. It's totally okay. That's yeah. why we fill in later. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> Um, I will just say holidays in the hospital, everything just seems more extreme. Like um, anything that happens on a holiday, it's those those days are just so emotionally loaded for people anyway. Um, anything that happens is going to just feel even bigger. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, this this the stakes are just higher, and and you just every time I, I see a patient, you know, die on a holiday, it just I think every year from now on, Thanksgiving is always going to be the day that grandma died, you know, and um, those holidays just bring up a lot of emotions. Um, it's supposed to be like a celebration time where you're with your family. And if you have a dysfunctional family or you don't have family to be with, um, that can lead to depression. And we set up these huge expectations for ourselves that no, um, no family is ever going to be able to live up to. Um, and then, you know, bad things, unexpected things happen. And we do see a lot of suicide attempts around the holidays, which, um, you know, after we see Rena, the transgender woman, ultimately jump off the roof, Ben tries to comfort Carter by saying, you know, we should have recognized this. I should have recognized this as a suicide attempt in the beginning that she drove into a, into a bridge or was trying to drive off the bridge, I guess. Um, but yeah, so I was just thinking a lot about that with the holidays and then the fact that the ER staff has a big Thanksgiving feast, which always happens in our ER too, probably everywhere it does when people have to work on the holidays. But. I don't know about y'all. I still remember specific patients and families that I, uh, served on specific holidays. Mm -hmm. Um, I got, I carry them with me now um, and I carry their stories and I remember what they went through and, um, and I think about them on subsequent um, anniversaries of those holidays, yeah. uh, which, you know, one way I, I cope with that is just to offer up an additional prayer for them and where they are in their journey um, and hoping the very best for them and, and coping um, with whatever thing happened. Uh, to their loved one or them. Um, but yeah. And, and I think, did you just say this, Stacey, that, that suicidality increases around the holidays? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then specific to transgender folks, um, they're 22 times more likely uh, to attempt suicide. Mm. So uh, if you are listening... Uh, 
There is also a national hotline actually recently developed, 1-877-565-8860, and it is specific to uh, transgender suicidality. So that's a, a specifically safe place for folks to call. Do I remember the statistic correctly? It's like 48%. I mean, you gave the statistic in a different version just a second ago, but 48% of transgendered people commit suicide? Like, or, or am I confusing Attempt, that with perhaps. attempted? But it's I mean, high, but I don't know. I know statistics. it's super, super. I was really shocked when I heard it. Um, I'm not I wish exactly I could sure. Confirm. Because when you do start questioning people's identity, as we were yeah. talking about in the last episode, it it really, really affects them emotionally and psychologically. Yeah. And this and was this was the right the, this episode between the the two boys in the car crash, but then specifically Ms. Carlson. I, it, this one really haunted me, and yeah. uh, I had a hard time processing and I watched it late at night and then had dreams about it that mm -hmm. night um but I just yeah. I was talking to Carter I was talking to Dr. Carter through that whole process of him here he is in the most intimate possible setting showing up his lacerations on this human being listening to them pour she's pouring her heart out and I'm already proud of Benton because he has come in and he has heard her specifically request a female pronoun and has used that. It doesn't even yes. blink, goes right back into it. Mm -hmm. And yet Carter just cannot seem to wrap his head around this. And we know the things that he has seen. And we know, you know, that this is just unthinkable to me that he could be this cruel at this point because his silence is cruel. Yeah. His, his silence. I don't know what he means by it, but it is cruel. He he surprised me, and maybe mm -hmm. it's just because I'm remembering much, much later John Carter. Uh, but I just was watching that scene where he was so demonstrably uncomfortable, and I just kept thinking, "This is not you, Carter." <laughs> um, so, but I don't know. I don't remember the early years uh, very well, so maybe this is one of the ways they develop his character by letting him encounter all sorts of folks in, in the ER. But um, he's not actually as bad as some of the other staff who mm -hmm. overtly reject um, the requested pronouns. Um, yes. He just tries to kind of, I guess, um, fly under the radar and he's not using um, the wrong pronouns. However, he's super uncomfortable and distant and cold. Yeah, he's barely speaking to her, so he doesn't really use pronouns at all because he's not even talking. And even when she's, you know, telling these heartbreaking stories about her father's response to her the first time that, you know, he encountered her as a transgender woman. And then when she says that people on the street look at me like I'm disgusting and maybe they're right, maybe I am disgusting. And she's starting to internalize all of that. And he says nothing to in any way contradict that or show any kind of compassion. And I was just... Oh, so disappointed in him and just crying out for him to say something. And then when he finally tries to show the compassion, it's too late. It's too late. And let's take this conversation back to Janie's point about um, how Christians 
sometimes want to impose their own litmus test. Mm -hmm. So when we have uh, Christian folks who are outright rejecting uh, the experience and identity of transgender folks or even LGBT folks uh, more broadly, uh, presumably with the... um, the perspective or notion that, you know, their understanding of the gospel is correct and all others are not um, in a way that is exclusive and not affirming of LGBTQ folks. Um, It's actually the opposite of gospel and the opposite of what people need, particularly someone like Ms. Carlson. Is that Carlson? Carlson. In her story, we see that she's been rejected by pretty much everyone. She's experiencing a degree of rejection from Carter. Um, What she needs, what everybody needs, is a community of folks. It doesn't have to be a church. Um, But if the church really wanted to be the church, if Christians really wanted to be the church to folks, um, they would come closer and seek to form the relationships rather than reject because that um, isolation and the lack of official support network, whether we're using the Christian language or not, um, is a literal lifeline for people. This storytelling that Ms. Carlson is doing, she's telling her story over and over in multiple heartbreaking ways. Mm-hmm. And stories cannot be told in a void. She's right? waiting for response. She's waiting to be heard. I don't care whether he thinks that she is disgusting in that moment, he can still respond to the story. I hear you. That must have been hard. Those things do not require him to make a judgment one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though, like you said, I really didn't feel that it felt, it fit his character. But just, you know, in looking at the way he acted, Mm -hmm. to to tell, tell a story in a void and have no one respond back that, that they hear the story that you are telling, that is what so, is so cruel and devastating. Not yeah. the actual response, because there is no response. Yeah, a few years ago, um, the pastor who was at my church at the time preached a sermon, and he one of the things that he talked about was a Pew survey that had come out, I think not too long before this, where people were asked to sort of associate what are the words that come to your mind when you hear Christian, you know, what are the things that you think of? And, and all, mostly all the top five were horrible negative things, but one of them was anti LGBTQ and that, you know, that Christians are, are now seen as the last ones who would ever be accepting of their friends and family members who come out as gay or bisexual or transgender or whatever, um, just breaks my heart. And, I've had very few encounters with transgender patients but um, in the hospital, but one that I do always remember that she um, had asked to do to, for information on advanced directives. And when she asked that, she had no idea that it would be a chaplain bringing her that information, but we're the ones who do that in my hospital. And, um, and she was just very uncomfortable. That when I introduced myself as the chaplain, I could just see her tense up and... Um, by the end of the visit, she finally did voice that, and she was just sort of waiting for me to condemn her, I think. And um, yeah, oh, I don't know. It was just, I'll, I'll never forget that. And it was really, really 
I just really felt for her that that has been her experience of Christians without any variation um, up to that point. Well, Stacy, you talked in one of our, perhaps it was our first or second episode about incarnation and mm-hmm. the way that we view the body. And one of the things that disgusted me about the situation was the way that Carter was taken aback when he's undressing her. Yeah. There's two males in the room. First of all, they're undressing what they take to be a woman. But when they see this, this member, you know, <coughs> that shows that she is transgender, all of a sudden that's the defining moment. It's not. Mm. So what happens to that incarnation of the body at that moment when that, when he takes his hand back and, and says, what, what is it? He says, we have a situation here. Yeah. We have some new information. Right. Oh, there we go. That's not much better. No. Yeah, I just so, wanted to be able to be with her and, and tell her that, no, you you are not disgusting. Your body is not disgusting. You are a beautiful child of God um, and, and deserve to be loved for who you are. Well, and we're more than our private part. Right? <laughs> you know, That's what I was trying to say, that incarnation yeah. is more than our private part. Yeah. For his entire perspective and and um, posture to her and and her care to change upon seeing presumably a penis, um, you know that's that's so troubling. And the the unfortunate reality is that um, not a lot has changed in terms of receiving um, ethical, supportive, affirming health care for LGBT folks and particularly transgender folks um, they, we, there are a lot of um, health care practitioners um, across the gamut you know in all of the various disciplines that show up in the hospital who bring their personal beliefs and baggage um, to caring for a particular transgender person and they let that impact um, their care and there are numerous unethical uh, situations or, or health care um, incidents where a transgender person has not been uh, treated with the same level of care and dignity and respect to do any child of God. Mm-hmm. I have a very dear friend who um, is up north in a very large city, and uh, she started out as being a doula, then she became a registered nurse, and now she's finishing up as a midwife. And um, her goal uh, is to open up a clinic in this part of Chicago for people of color and specifically transgender people of color to get the health care they need, specifically um, having to do with having babies, because mm-hmm. most of the time they just don't get care because they're yeah. so scared and because the outcomes in that particular city are so dire for that you know, group of people. So I'm, I'm so proud to know that she is working towards um, that and educating. She also happens to be my cousin. So. Okay. That's all. Yeah. I don't know. I'm struggling with um, just it's such, it's still such a taboo topic. And I, it, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know how to like, 
encourage people to step outside of, of what they're used to because it is so taboo. I feel like I have to be, I don't know. I don't even know. I mean, I feel like it's horrible that I'm even thinking about myself. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know how to talk about it because I'm so worried and I'm so ignorant about what that must be like to live that way. And I recognize my own, I guess my own privilege and, and my own lack of knowledge about how, how life is for transgender people. And so sometimes I feel just like paralyzed, like how do we I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like there's a, there's a little part of me that, and I don't know if it's my bias because I, I do love Carter's character. And I do think for the most part, he's, he's empathetic and caring and he's a big picture healthcare provider, which is wonderful. Um, so there, maybe that's just my bias, but there's a little part of me that, that, just wants to wants to defend him a little bit and say like he's he's getting used to it it's it's different it's new you know and I don't know how to how to make that work um in my you know my theology or my just my philosophy that like this you know all the things you guys are saying like this is a person who deserves to be listened to and to be heard and um I don't know but I mean my, my reality is most of the people that I work with are probably uncomfortable with this too. So, I mean, how do I, how do we manage that? How do we deal with that? When, when Jesus teaches us about different subjects, he tells us stories over Mm. and over again. He tells us stories about the way that different people acted. And again, I would just urge all of us to listen to each other's stories. Mm -hmm. Carter will never be the same because in the end he did hear Ms. Carlson's story and it will haunt him that he did not respond to it in some way. So again, that goes back to just the power of storytelling and the power of listening. And we as chaplains know the power of the non-anxious presence and listening, that we can take those stories and we can find a way to make new meaning with them. And go ahead, Janie. In such a hopeless situation, I guess I find some hope in that it was it was Carter, you know, who was changed by this because I'm not sure that all of the characters would even be changed or would even have the capacity to, but I feel like we know him and and we know his, he has some self-awareness and he has empathy and that this will impact how he cares for patients in the future. So it's just a little, a little sliver of hope I gained from this, but. And we do have to remember that he is an incredibly young male. How, Mm -hmm. how, how young is he as, as a resident here? He says, he's, probably... he says he's 25 at some point. I'm yeah. not sure which episode that's in. but <laughs> So a lot so. of males are still grappling with their their sexuality at that point, And anything right. that challenges it does make them very uncomfortable. So right. again, they I'm not going the... to defend him on that, but I have seen it, you know, perhaps college age that that men tend to be very nervous about about defining sexuality. Yeah, and it, and and it was the mid-90s, too, and things were different then. That doesn't make it okay. But, I mean, Carter is definitely not alone in being uncomfortable with this patient, and he at least doesn't make cruel jokes about her. Like, one of the nurses says something about be, her being a she-male and makes a joke about which bathroom she might be going to. And, um, yeah. you know, that was pretty common <laughs> at that time and sadly is still is not uncommon common. now. Yeah. 
Um, and just speaking of common, I just, one of the things that my eyes have really been open to working in a hospital is that um, so few things are black and white. And, yes. and especially religious people who do get so caught up in um, and so upset about the acceptance of transgender people becoming more common. And they'll say, you know, well, God made us male and female. Like, that's it. You're either male or you're female. And that's the way it is, you know. Um, but the reality is that is not always the case. I mean, I have been with more than one family who had a baby born with either ambiguous genitalia or um, chromosomally was one sex and, and had the genitalia of the other sex. And yes. so when the first question that they would get asked was, oh, is it a boy or a girl? And they didn't know how to answer. And that was really traumatic for these families because so much of our society is built around gender stereotypes and gender identity and it's all you know man or woman girl or boy and there's nothing in between and so they don't know where their child fits and that's really hard um and and after the first couple times that this happened for me I I read something um and I wish I could find the source maybe if I find it I'll put it in the show notes but that said that that kind of situation is as common as a baby being born with red hair. Um, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's way more common than we realize. Yes. Because yeah. nobody will talk, nobody talks about it. Yeah. There's so much shame and stigma surrounding it that, um, that that prevents, I think, that's a barrier to people talking about it and sharing their experiences. And then not every child born um, is raised even informed with that information that, hey, by the way, when you were born, you were intersex. And the reality is there are still deeply unethical surgeries being performed Mm -hmm. on children. Um, I mean, just in South Carolina a few years ago, there was a lawsuit against DSS, who was the legal custodian of a child at the time that uh, gender reassignment surgery or gender assignment surgery was conducted. And, um, the child was later on adopted into a family who was affirming of um, their gender identity and, you know, they, who they felt like didn't match the assigned mm-hmm. genitalia. Um, so there's a lawsuit. Like, you made this decision on, the behalf of, on behalf of this child, and this is unethical. Mm-hmm. Richard Rohr, I, I subscribed to... Um his daily devotions, and he's been doing a series on sexual justice. And one of the things that yes. he's been talking about in the last couple of weeks is gender identity and gender, gender fluidity and the idea of, you know, how is this defined by culture and where did it come from? Mm-hmm. Because it's so much more complicated than um, most people would like to think that it is. So I do believe that there is a changing dialogue about that. Um, at least I would like to hope there is, but we have a long way to go. Oh, yeah. We do, yeah, but there, I think there definitely is progress being made. Slow though it may be. So I think uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention um, Carol Hathaway's uh ethical dilemma in terms of, do I keep the confidence, the sort of deathbed confession, so to speak, of this teenager um, who was driving the car when a couple of other teenagers were killed? Um, Or do I disclose uh, that he's at fault and 
in order to have him charge with manslaughter. Mm -hmm. And she has such a <clears throat> such a, a chaplain advocate position in this whole episode with um, yeah. with Andrew Andy Andrew. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and it makes me wonder in the end, who's ministering to her? Uh, she does talk about it to several different people, but mm -hmm. I would love for there to be a chaplain to help her process this whole situation and this ethical dilemma. Yeah, Meanwhile, the, she... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. It's just interesting that the way she frames it is she, she's talking to Lydia, one of the other nurses, and she says... She feels like a priest. She says, this kid unburdened his soul to me, and I don't feel right passing that on. Um, I just thought it was interesting that that's the way that she um, spoke about it. I loved that imagery. And mm -hmm. she shows um, a deep respect for that position and for her being sort of um, the recipient of, of such, a, such a deep, vulnerable um, confession. Uh, and then, you know, this kind of parallel with her unburdening herself to her boyfriend and admitting mm -hmm. to him that she was having uh, sex with her ex-boyfriend and she was unfaithful a couple of times. And um, such, a, such a contrast, right? Like, that was about her um, and making herself feel better um, to his detriment. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm not condoning... Um, you know, being unfaithful to your, to your partner. Um, however, you know, there's that part in 12-step uh, groups where they talk about how you need to, like, admit um, your, your transgressions and stuff, but there's, like, this phrase, except when to do so would injure them or others. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a sense in which her unburdening herself to her boyfriend is really only hurtful to him, um, when, you know, she can make a resolve for herself to live differently and she can give herself, um, you know, whatever, well, whatever the, the part where penance she admits that she slept with him before suicide attempt explains a lot of things. Yeah. I feel yeah. like he could move past them, past that, and, and understand her better because of it, even though it will, you know, be a rough road. But when she says, when she tells him about the kiss, which she immediately, you know, took responsibility for and told Doug that that didn't mean anything. That was where I was like, this, this seems like the overstep. I'm not sure that that was the most helpful decision. Although again, I totally see where you're coming from, Carrie. I mean, I'm not saying lie or omit, but <laughs> ugh, bleh. Yeah. <laughs> Complicated. Yes, very. <laughs> but um, telling, you know, getting the truth out there about which, which kid was actually driving in the accident is a very different story, I think, because the, oh, yeah. the yep. mother of the kid who died, who who wasn't the driver, but she thinks he was, she's so, you know, angry at him for not only ended up killing himself, but decapitating this pedestrian. You know, she just thinks that he he did all this and um and it's really affecting her and her grief. And I think, I feel like she needs to know the truth. She's got some very complicated grief because she's articulating how, um, how sad she is that her son has died and how angry she is at him mm -hmm. for costing her that relationship and his own life, as well as um, what he's done to these other, or what she believes he's done to these other teenagers. Mm 
Right. And goodness gracious, she's she's gone in there to identify her son, Larry. And she says to the staff, I just saw my son. And then she's walking out all by herself. Right. Yes. She has to deal with this complicated grief. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Where Where's is the, the chaplain yep, that walked right. with her and away with her and <laughs> gave her the tools she needed to get started on this awful journey? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, she does not yeah, need like, to be alone for that. Just, just route wandering around. <laughs> they do that all the time. Yeah. Just... <laughs> mm. I mean, I did feel for, um, oh, what's the other kid? Andy, the one who was actually driving and lies to his mom about it. Um because, you know, I mean, he he made a stupid decision like teenagers do all the time. But two people died because of his stupid decision. And he can't just it, it's really easy to try to blame it on his dead friend. But um, he, you know, I think Carol realizes that she can't just let him get away with that. And I think he eventually realizes that he has to own up to it as well. Um, the staff is talking about that, too. They're They're laughing over their survival of their stupid teenage decisions oh, and i believe yeah. it's doug yeah. it's doug ross again who says but for the grace of god go i uh-huh. which yeah. again i think it's so interesting that he's the one talking about god again because he was the one who was using the phrases about god before mm-hmm. yeah and i was i'm so mark green in that scene like that is exact thing has happened to me in our er multiple times where staff members will start talking about things that they did when they were in um, high school or college, and I just think I led a sheltered life. <laughs> yeah, I did not do any of these risky things when I was a kid. <laughs> no, there but for the grace of God go by. <laughs> really, a miracle. I'm still here. Don't forget the guy attacked by the Thanksgiving turkey. Oh my god! Because goodness. my husband was laughing out loud, <laughs> loling over that whole situation. And then the fact that he and eats he the turkey eats leg. It. Yeah. He eats it and, and he's, he's terrified that he enjoyed bringing it. Yeah. Poor conflicted guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also this was just a little, a little throwaway thing, but um, Doug Ross talks about, you know, he's going away with his girlfriend for this cruise and Mark Green's kind of envious of him. And then, Doug says, you know, you're the lucky one. You get to be with your beautiful wife and your beautiful daughter and your in-laws. And he says something about um, Thanksgiving with the reverend. So apparently Mark's father-in-law is a minister. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that, I'm, do they say, ahead. I think they name him as Presbyterian. Or I also kind of want to say Lutheran, but that might be because they live like in Wisconsin or something. But um uh. Maybe Presbyterian. Did you guys hear that ever? Have you heard that at any point in the I series? feel like maybe I have. <laughs> That's not that important, but just being a religion nerd. Yeah, you know, exactly. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, what kind of ministry? Right, my ears perk up when I hear that kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad you mentioned that relationship that Doug Ross is in, because mm-hmm. uh, I had completely forgotten until you just mentioned it. But guys, this is an ethical dilemma here. I mean, for a doctor to be dating the pharmaceutical rep. Who Who's paying for their, everything. 
she's paying for everything and he's sleeping with her and he is benefiting from all of these um, perks of being in a relationship with her. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think it would be a big ethical dilemma. Absolutely. It's, 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 ab- it's absolutely portrayed as a ridiculously unethical dilemma. Yeah. She represents I mean, Big Pharma, right? I mean, <laughs> and they're, so I was I mean, wondering, they're, like, they're literally and figuratively sleeping together. I mean, we use that phrase all the time. He's in bed with Big Pharma. He's in bed with yeah. Big Pharma. <laughs> he really is. <laughs> But she I doesn't mean, really like so, when you call her that. Is there a <laughs> way? <laughs> is there a way that if this if this were a real thing, um, and they were truly in love and wanted to be together, I mean, is there is there something she could do, like like remove herself from serving that particular hospital, or um, I mean, what would she seems real concerned about those kind of ethical questions. Yeah, I think but she would have I to. I concerned, Sarah Jane. Yeah. I want to know. I know. Well, I was just, just the other, like, last week, I got the email with our annual conflict of interest survey that I have to yes. sign off and say that I don't have any relationships with anybody who, you know, any companies that contribute financially to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even as a chaplain, you know, what's that? What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, we know. Y'all, we are so punchy. We're this is, stuck this is on bad. That. <laughs> um, it, I'm not, I'm curious about the history of the pharmaceutical industry and how long, how long have there been drug reps and how long have they been attractive young women? And, you know, <laughs> she goes like, in trolling after everybody. Oh, she's flirting yeah. with everybody. Yeah. But that's kind of a, like a stereotype, you know, and I wonder, it yeah, it, it, it could not have always been that way. I mean, the 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 70s weren't that long before this, you know, like what was it like before and, and, and how did this happen and how did we get there? And have we have we made have the changes that we see, like when we read about these conflict of interest things at work now? Is that a significant change from 1994 when this storyline was happening? Right. Yeah. Yes and no, I would think. We'll do a little research. Well, I mean, yeah, but like, is it, was it, it like HIPAA? HIPAA wasn't a thing then. Right. You know, right. it is now. So like, is it a thing now that they have to say they're not going to go to lunch with the pharmaceutical rep or whatever, you know? I mean, like is limiting that, what you, you know, the amount you can if mm-hmm. you know your child's right. teacher i'm sure right. that there's some limits like that but i think that that relationship being very unethical still exists yeah not maybe not the same kind of relationship but right yeah if any of our listeners are pharmaceutical reps or no pharmaceutical reps please tell us what you know about the history of that industry and how <laughs> things worked in the 90s yeah <laughs> Um, well, yeah, we are all getting pretty, pretty silly. It is getting late. Um, does anybody have any final thoughts before we shut it down? <laughs> We've covered a lot of ground tonight. Um, it's been a great conversation as always. 
Listeners, thank you so much for being with us. Um, big thank you to those of you who have given us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. Um, we still do not have any written reviews, though. So if you could just take a, f- a few seconds to write a couple sentences about what you like about the show, that will be more attention-grabbing and help us find even more listeners. Um, if you know other people who would enjoy the show who are interested in chaplaincy or love at ER, please recommend us. And let us know what you think about the show by email or on our social medias, um, social media accounts. We would love to hear from you. Carrie, Sarah Jane, and Janie, thank you all so much for contributing your expertise and wit to this conversation. Can't wait to be back with you all next week for more ER Chaplains Watching ER. <laughs>